I think it's obvious to many of us that this has been a challenging couple of months for us here at Grace. I was just thinking about since April, we've had three funerals. Tomorrow morning will be our fourth. If you look at the prayer sheet, if you read the emails, you know there are still people right now in the midst of some severe trials, be it health or otherwise. Some of you have invited us to pray with you publicly for those things. We know about some of the hurts that are happening here at Grace. And I'm sure many of you have private trials and challenges that threaten to overwhelm you, that you are trying to endure on your own. Maybe you look around at everyone else and their lives seem to be going pretty smoothly. They've got a good job and a family and things are going pretty well and you just look at yourself and you think that you're stuck. That everything is passing you by in life. Maybe you're just lonely. Maybe in a crowd full of people, you still feel alone. Maybe no one asks you how you're actually doing so you can tell them and pour your heart out to them. Maybe you're a parent who has tried your best to teach your kids about the God that you love and serve, only to watch your children make decisions that just grieve you and make you think that it's going in one ear and out the other. Maybe this morning there is financial hardship in your life. You're working as hard as you can just to make ends meet, and you see other people that don't do as much, and they're fine. Maybe other people are retired, and you're not. You're not sure how you're going to pay bills the next month. Maybe you're just exhausted with the day-to-day responsibilities of life, doing everything you can just to keep your head above water, and you can barely catch a breath. Life is so busy. Maybe you're in a transition in your life, trying to decide what school to go to, if you should take a new job, when you should retire, what you should do with your time, and those decisions are just in the forefront of your mind. Maybe it's a spiritual burden that you are carrying today. Maybe a sin that seems overwhelming. Maybe a loved one that you would love nothing more than for them to come to Christ and for whatever reason, they're not. You see no interest in their hearts to come to Jesus. And, and we can defer thinking about these things for a time, right? We, we can stay busy. We can entertain ourselves. But eventually, these troubles, these problems, are going to consume our thinking. It's going to be the last thing we think of before we fall asleep and the first thing that we think of when we wake up. 
And in those quiet times of thought, when our troubles loom the largest, we start asking ourselves questions. How in the world did I get here? What went wrong in my life to land me where I am today? How can I fix this? Inevitably, as Christians, we start directing some thoughts to God. Maybe things that we would be embarrassed to admit or voice out loud. But we have a head knowledge of God that tells us that he is good and loving. And when we look at our circumstances, they don't seem to be all that good and loving. And we start to ask God, God, do you care what I'm going through? Do you know what I'm going through? If you are good, how can I be suffering so much in this life? And left unchecked, these thoughts can spiral out of control until we become depressed, we slip into despair, we're hopeless, we become cynical towards God and others. The troubles of our life rob us of peace, joy, comfort, even sleep. I realize this is kind of a heavy start to a sermon, but I also realize this is real life. Do you feel what the hymn writer said in It Is Well? That sorrows like sea billows roll? So the question for us this morning then is how do we navigate these thoughts and these anxieties of life that overwhelm us? Thankfully, the scriptures are not silent on this issue. When we open the Bible, we don't see perfect people who never had any problems in life. Everything is just sunshine and roses for him. That's not the case. Immediately, Hannah came to mind in the Old Testament. Someone who just wanted a child so badly. Maybe you're thinking of Elijah in the Old Testament, who even after a great display of God's power, asked God to take his life. He was so depressed. Maybe in the New Testament, you think of the Apostle Paul pleading with God, God, please take this thorn out of my side. Maybe you think of the Psalms, where over and over and over again, writers unashamedly pour their hearts out to God and ask those hard questions. And we are actually going to be in the Psalms this morning. Psalm 77, if you would turn there. This is our text today. And as we read Psalm 77, can I encourage you to really engage with this text? Maybe in a way that you're not used to with Scripture, but put yourself 
in the author's shoes and see if you can resonate with the experience that is being described here for us. We'll read the first nine verses to begin with. Psalm 77, beginning in verse 1, we read this. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Can I ask you a question? Do you feel as if you've lived parts of this psalm before? Do you know what this is like? This is why we love the Psalms so much. They're so relatable. Here's a man, the header tells us this man is Asaph, who is obviously in the midst of a significant emotional and spiritual low point in his life. We don't know the specifics of what he's going through, but it is very evident to us that this man is suffering, that life is hard. And I want us to see this morning what we can learn from Asaph's experience as he bears his heart to us in this psalm. Many of us can resonate with the sorrow and the grief that he is experiencing. How do you navigate the difficulties and the sorrows of life? Let's let Asaph tell us. First of all, Asaph, in the midst of his trouble, he does turn to the right person. Look again at verses 1 And two, he is crying out to God. In the day of his trouble, he does seek the Lord. There you can see that in the night, his his hand is stretched out likely in prayer without wearying. I think many of us know that when we suffer, we also need to turn to God. He can do something about our problems. Asaph knows that. And yet, what effect does that have on his life. Do all of his problems go away? Is he immediately happy and joyful again because he looked to God? Notice the end of verse 2 and 3. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Other translations say here, when he tries to remember God, he's restless. 
Thinking about God makes him groan. Do you ever feel this way? When talking to God feels more like an exercise than a privilege? When you try to pray but your thoughts are scattered and you're unable to focus on the truth? That seems to be what the psalmist is describing here. That even engaging in what we would call spiritual things is difficult and it leaves him feeling no closer to God. Now notice I didn't say that God is distant, but certainly his emotions feel like, where is God in this moment? Hardship has a way of isolating us, of making us feel like we are all alone, and yet this isn't in the extent of the problems that Asaph is facing in this psalm. Look again at verses 4 to 6. Verse 4, he describes sleeplessness. He describes being so troubled that he can't even talk. This is the person that you encounter who seems to be in a daze when you're talking to them. They may be in front of you physically, but you can tell their mind is a million miles away thinking about something else. This is where Asaph is at. To borrow imagery from another psalm, it feels as if wave after wave of hardship is crashing and washing over him. Verses 5 and 6 continue by Asaph thinking back on better days. Verse 5, those days of old, the years long ago, he tries to remember a time in which he was singing at night. And how far away those memories must have been with the present struggle that he's in, right? Because rather than singing in the night, how does he spend his nights? Sleepless. In prayer. Crying out to God. He can hardly talk right now, let alone sing. And as he thinks back on these better days, he comes to a point of reckoning in which he begins to look internally and ask a series of questions to God. And I want us to look at them again. They begin in verse 7. Notice the questions that Asaph asks of God. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Let me ask you, how do these questions strike you? Does this kind of bluntness and transparency surprise you? Especially coming from someone who wrote the scriptures? 
right? We could go down right now to the junior church room and ask any of the four to six-year-olds any of these questions, and they would tell you the right answer. And yet here the psalmist is wondering if perhaps they're actually true. Because the experiences of his life are so overwhelming. We're going to come back to these questions at the end. But I want to point out that these questions really seem to be the turning point in the psalm. It gets better from here. Maybe as Asaph is thinking about the answers to these questions, he's able to turn the corner in his mind and reorient his thinking on what is true. There's a shift that takes place in verses 10 through the end. We're going to read them. However, before we do, there is a key word or a key idea that is repeated in verses 10 to 12 that I want you to keep an eye out for, that I want you to see if you can spot and see what it is that helps Asaph to turn the corner from his thinking from despair to hope. I'll read verses 10 and 12 and just pay attention. What, what key phrase or word is repeated? Verse 10, Asaph says this, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Did you see the repeated idea? Notice again verse 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Second line, yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Verse 12, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. The psalmist here is making an intentional effort to think back on what God has done. Verse 10 is a little confusing here in the ESV. I thought the NIV uh, clarified it just a little bit. Let me read it for you. But I think it even contributes further to what I'm describing here. The NIV says this, To this I will appeal the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I don't see it right now, but I'm going to think back on a time on which I could see the right hand of God at work. I am going to remember, to ponder, and to meditate. And what follows in verses 13 to the end is just that. It is a time of remembering of what God has done. And I find it really interesting here that Asaph, in the midst of his trials, isn't dealing with conjecture about what he thinks about God or speculating about what God must be like because my circumstances are terrible, therefore God must be terrible. No, Asaph goes back to truth, to things that have happened, that are historical, that he knows, demonstrate who God is and what he is like. Like, and it is upon this remembrance that he makes conclusions 
about God. And actually, the conclusions come first and then the historical event. But as we read verses 13 to the end, I want you to be thinking about what event Asaph is remembering. Look at verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What event does this seem to be describing here? You know, we just read it in our scripture reading. He's thinking back on the Exodus, specifically walking through the Red Sea on dry ground. And I know we just read it in our scripture reading, but I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these Israelites and think about what this must have been like. It must have been an absolute roller coaster of emotions for them. Because for the first time in 400 years, these slaves who had only ever known Egypt were set free. And they plunder their neighbors as they're walking out of there. Can you imagine the high of that experience? Unbelievable. But that euphoria quickly turns to dread. Because pretty quickly, Pharaoh changes his mind and says, no way am I letting my free labor just walk out of here. And he starts chasing them down. And he catches up to the people at the geographically worst possible place. A body of water in front of them. Pharaoh's army bearing down behind them. And we didn't read this in our scripture reading this morning, but the people's response demonstrates their attitude in the situation. It is not one of comfort and trust and rest in who God is. They are greatly afraid. They cry out to God. They say to Moses, did you bring us out here to die? I would rather, they say, be a slave who is alive than die in the wilderness. And what are these people forgetting or failing to remember, we could say? That they had just seen their God bring about 10 plagues on the people of Egypt. They forget that their God is great, that he works wonders. They forget that their God has a strong right arm. And how does Moses respond to these accusations of the people? Again, we didn't read it this morning, but I'll read it for you here. 
He says, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And what happens next is almost beyond comprehension. We've never seen anything like this before. Moses stretches his arm out over the Red Sea, and the waters part. And the people of Israel do the impossible and walk through on dry ground, and the Egyptians try to follow, and the waters close back over them, and their enemies are defeated. This does not happen naturally, right? There's only one explanation for this. God is at work. This is what it looks like for God to fight for you. And so as the author of Psalm 77 is recounting these events, what do you think happens in his thinking? I think verses 13 to 15 really are his conclusions about God after thinking about it. He says, again, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your right arm, redeemed your people by the children of Jacob and Joseph. Asaph here is reminded of who God is, of the power that he demonstrates. He's probably thinking to himself, my situation is not unique. I'm not the only person who's found himself in a day of trouble. I can think back in history when the people of Israel were in a day of trouble, probably much worse than the one that I am in, and God delivered them. Can he not do the same for me? He could have thought about any instance in the Old Testament and made this conclusion. He could have thought about God providing water from the, wa- from the rock, or providing manna in the wilderness, or victory over Jericho, and any reflection upon these acts of God leaves you with no other conclusion than that God is faithful, God is powerful, God is good, to quote verse 13, what God is great like our God. And I trust the application then for us is pretty obvious. What can you look back at in your own life that is evidence of God's power at work that you can use as fuel to remind yourself that even though you are in the midst of something pretty terrible right now, God has proven himself in your past, and he will do so again. Maybe you remember a time when you didn't have any groceries in your cupboard, and God provided, or he provided finances to pay for a bill. Maybe it was the provision of opportunities where God met your needs by providing you a job that perfectly fit your skill set. Maybe you remember God's provision of a spouse in your life. Maybe you remember God's provision of your upbringing and your education that allowed you to be here where you are today. 
From, for personal reference, it is clearly God's provision in my own life that brought me to a town that I've never heard of in a part of the country I've never been. God brought me here. Have you seen God provide healing to a loved one that science can't give an answer for? Have you seen God answer prayers so specifically that you are left with no other conclusion than that this was divine? Maybe the biggest one of all. Can you remember how God providentially brought you to Christ? Perhaps even working out circumstances and events before you were born that had to do with your parents and grandparents creating an environment in which it was natural for you to come to Jesus. Let me encourage you to spend some time maybe this afternoon when you are tempted to wallow in the despair of the trial that is assuming so large to think back on what God has done for you. And be reminded that God is bigger than any of your problems. There's nothing impossible or outside of his control. I told you we'd come back to the questions this morning in verses 7 to 9, and I want to do just that because I think it's going to be encouraging for us to actually answer them. I've put them on the screen here for you, so you don't need to look at the text. Here's the first question. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Does God just sit in heaven with his arms crossed and a scowl on his face and say, I'm never looking at you with favor again? Can I remind you of what the Psalms say? Here's Psalm 84. The Lord God is a sun and shields. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God shows favor on those who walk uprightly. How about the next question the psalmist asks? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Perhaps the writer of Lamentations thought this as he was sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem that were literally burning around him. And what conclusion does he come to? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new Every morning, great is your faithfulness. The third question. Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to keep his word? Does he lie? Is he forgetful? Again, the answer is no. Numbers 23 says this, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? 
or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? When God makes a promise, he keeps it. We know this. And so in the midst of hard times, we cannot forget these things. That God will never leave us or forsake us. That when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. That he gives grace to the humble. This is who God is. Asaph asks another question. Has God forgotten to be gracious? And again, God, in a description of himself, says this in Exodus 34, that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Graciousness is not just something that God does, and he can forget to do it sometimes. Graciousness is who God is. It's his character. So he hasn't forgotten to be gracious. He's always gracious in everything that he does. And the final question the psalmist asks, has he in anger shut up his compassion? And again, the psalms answer this. Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Perhaps you're thinking about the illustration in the New Testament that Jesus gives when he says, even your earthly fathers know not to give you a rock when you ask for bread. Can you imagine the goodness and the provision then of your heavenly father? The compassion that he shows towards his children? And so the answer to all of these questions that the psalmist asks in despair is a resounding no. God is favorable. God is steadfast. He keeps his promises. He is gracious. He is compassionate. I think we would do well to remind ourselves of a truth from Romans that we have considered not too long ago in Sunday school, that the greatest expression of God's goodness to us is in sending Jesus Christ to die in our place. To redeem us from our sins. And if we ever doubt that God is good, look to the cross. And remember his love. Remember what Romans 8 says about there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The end of it teaching us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Here's the reality. Remembering our past and God's work in our life is not actually a guarantee that our problems go away. Remember what Paul was told by God when he asked for his thorn in the flesh to be removed? Not sure, I'll do whatever you say, Paul. Jesus says that his grace is sufficient for him. Paul says, okay. This psalm is not teaching that every time we have a hardship, God's going to deliver us. 
It is teaching us, though, to remember the God that is behind everything. Who has a strong right arm. Who is good. His steadfast love endures forever. He is merciful. He is gracious. And even if our problems persist, we know that his grace will help us sustain these things. And so as we close this morning, just a simple question that you don't need to answer out loud, but just think to yourself, has God ever failed you? Was there a time in your life where you could say, well, you dropped the ball here? No way. Let me encourage you to remember who God is, to remember what he has done in your past, And something remarkable will begin to happen as you do this. The things in your life that seem so large and consuming and dominate your sleep and your waking hours aren't going to seem that big anymore because your God is bigger. Your God loves you. It's one thing to be able to recite from memory that God is good, and kind, and loving. It's another entirely to be able to look back at your own life and say, I know God is good, and kind, and loving. Over the course of my lifetime, he has never once failed me. So let me encourage you to pray like this. Lord, you know that this trial and this hurt is looming large in my life, whatever it is. But as I reflect on your past provision, I know that you've never failed me, you've never let me down, you've been faithful in my past, you are faithful now, you are bigger than my problems, you do love me, and I know this experientially. And so I trust you, even in the midst of of hardships. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Asaph's transparency here. We know this psalm from the experience of our own life. Lord, you know the state of our own church right now. There is a lot of hardship and trial and grief that is going on here. But would you help us to remember, to know who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be? We have experienced you in miraculous ways, and yet we are so soon to forget. Help us to trust that even in the midst of circumstances that aren't all that fun, that we would rather not be in, that you still know, you still care, and you are still good in the midst of them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.